Good morning. Okay, we're going to continue in Ezra. We're going to be in Ezra 4 today, in uh, verses 1 through 6, then verse 24, starting in verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us there, or brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 24. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Turn to the book of Ezra. Your Bible's in the back if you don't have one. I'll have some of the verses. We're, we're going to jump around a little bit, and I'll explain why. But there are Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, take it home with you. Um, if you have one and you've taken it home and you've got like nine of them, bring some back, keep one. Um, if you... I said this before. I'll dismiss the kids in a moment. But I've said this before. Um, if, if we're in Ezra 4 today, um, if you go back on our website, podcast, video, however, download it. But that very first sermon on um, Ezra, uh, we did a historical background. If you have not listened to that, I just want to encourage you to do that and go to our uh, website and look at the first uh, sermon on the series, and uh, you'll see the historical background. I'll bring everybody up to speed, um, and uh, we, we can go from there, okay? So kids, you're dismissed, and we are in Ezra 4, around 538, 537 B.C., Long time ago, Ezra 4, years after the receiving the promised land, the people of God who settled in the land grew cold and rebellious against God, and, and God sent them warning after warning, prophet after prophet, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and some other prophets, uh, to, 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 to warn them, uh, to, to tell them that God was going to discipline his people if they continued to live in rebellion of him that he was going to discipline, that he was going to, to, to remove them from the land. But they didn't listen. <laughs> we could preach a whole sermon on that, right? Yes, he's talking about me. The people didn't listen. So God did what he said he was going to do. He sent them into exile. First in 722 B.C., ten tribes of the northern kingdom called Israel is ransacked and destroyed by the Assyrian army. 586 B.C., the Babylonians, the new world power, conquered, destroyed Jerusalem, burning the city and conquering Jerusalem, the place of God. It looks like God's promises, God's covenant to his covenant people are over. But because God is love, he has an eternal love for his people, God's promises are sure, He tells his covenant people that they were going to get another chance. They were going to return. There was going to be another exodus. A leaving of a land and going back to the promised land. He told Jeremiah to prophesy that after 70 years, a full generation in exile, 
they would return to the place where they met God, to the place of worship, to the place where his presence was, his Shekinah glory, his panim, his face. The second exodus is where Ezra 1 opens up. God fulfilling his promise. The 70 years of the prophesied exile from Babylonian captivity has passed. God stirs this pagan king named Cyrus of Persia. And Ezra 1.1, just like Isaiah said, he makes a proclamation. All the Jews living in captivity, living in Babylon, can go back to the promised land. And the book of Ezra opens up with the first installment of this new exodus, the second exodus. Last week, we looked at the question, we answered the question, what was their priority? What did they go back for? What did they, what did they trek over 900 miles, four months on foot? What was the first thing they did when they got there? Last week, we said it was in one word, worship. In fact, we saw not only the priority of their worship, but the vital purpose of their worship because they immediately started erecting and building this altar so that they can sacrifice to the Lord, to atone for their sins. And so remember Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you, God says, on the altar to make atonement for your soul, for the blood that makes atonement for the life. So one life is forfeited, sacrificed, There's an exchange, there's a substitute, and the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So they show up, and and they begin to sacrifice to atone. Then chapter 3 ended. Last week we saw it end with the foundation being repaired. And just this glorious worship service just erupts with his people. And some people wept as they're singing. People are singing with joy. Some people are crying in sadness. They were the elderly, they were the older ones who saw the the glory of the first temple, the Solomon's temple. They saw how magnificent it was and all the people that were gathered. And then they looked at what was going on now. Years later, and they said, no, this doesn't compare. This doesn't compare. And they wept. Yet there were many who sang and praised God. In fact, verse 11 of chapter 3, it says, they sang responsibly. Praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, they said, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And even though there was weeping mixed in, verse 13, as the chapter closes, it says, the people shouted with great shout, with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. You would think as chapter 3 closes, you would turn the page and go to chapter 4. And you would read these words. The Lord saw the worship of His people and the sacrifices and He blessed the work of of the people and rebuilding the temple and the Jewish people rebuilt the temple in a week. It was over. It's not what happens. What really happens at the very onset of their serving the Lord, doing the work of the Lord, obeying the Lord, going to do and and, and where they're supposed to be, where they're supposed to be, they run into a brick wall. They run into a brick world. Adversity, trouble, conflict. See, there are those who will tell you, become a Christian and all your problems will go away. You know, you you live in this constant state of of good relationships, healed relationships, a constant state of victory. They usually have perfect teeth, three jets, and five houses, and they'll tell you these things. They somehow leave out parts of the Bible, you know, this message of unfailing success without any sacrifice or at any setbacks or any discouragement is not only biblical for the most of us sitting here today. It's not even real. They don't take into account the setbacks 
all the pain and all the difficulties that God's people have been going through for centuries. All you have to do is read Psalms, Lamentations, Paul, thorn in his flesh, prays with faith to have it removed. God's like, "Uh uh-uh. Nope. What about the cross? We have a Savior who lived a perfect life and then was hated. He was ridiculed. He was maligned. He was crucified. That, my friends, is trials and broken relationships. It's pain and suffering. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're facing adversity. Maybe you're here this morning and you're facing opposition and you're wondering, what's going on? What is God trying to tell me? What is God trying to show me? What is it that I need to know? Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. Ezra 4. We see that they were doing what they were supposed to do. They st- we see that they are doing where, where they are where they're supposed to be. Now, as you look at it, if hopefully you're in Ezra 4, I want to just, before we jump into this, there's something that I need to explain to you, especially you guys are in community group, you're community group leaders. There's a historical context, or should I say a chronological order, in this, in this passage that I need to point out to you so you're not confused, okay? So if you have Ezra 4, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, the author who's writing this is talking about the context or the chronological order of when Cyrus, king of Persia, that first king who let them go back, it's right when they returned, what was going on during the time in which they were rebuilding the temple. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. In fact, at the end of chapter, uh, excuse me, at verse 5, it says, if you have your Bibles open, chapter 4, verse 5, it says that this was going on and bribed counsel against them to frustrate their purpose. That was building the temple. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia. That's how the book opens with that king. Even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay? And then the author of Ezra, sort of like a footnote, right? They don't have footnotes in the Bible. They don't have an appendix in the back. Go to appendix A. So then the author puts a footnote in. So verse 6 is a parenthesis. And then verse, it ends in verse 23. And what the author is doing is saying, look, this was going on, trying to build the temple. It went on for years from King Cyrus to King Darius. Oh, by the way, as a footnote, as a side, as a parenthesis, this was going on for 100 years, 80 years. It was during the reign of Arusarus, which is Xerxes, which is easier to say. It's the same guy, so I'll go with Xerxes. And Artaxerxes. That's the, because it's in Aramaic and it's translated to the Greek, but Xerxes and Artaxerxes. So what the, what the author is saying is, there's four kings mentioned in, in here. He's saying, listen, Cyrus was king, then Darius was king. And between those two guys, while the, while the reign was going on, we had opposition trying to build the temple. And by the way, you know what? This has been going on for a really long time. In fact, Artaxerxes and Xerxes, during their reign, there was opposition as well. And he talks about a letter that was going on during their reign. So it's a parenthesis. In fact, look at verse 13. It says, now he, he's talking about in the reign of Artaxerxes, the fourth king. Now be it known to the king, Artaxerxes, that if this city is rebuilt, and what? The walls. Right? The temple's already done. If the walls are finished. So what the author is trying to say is there's opposition in the beginning while the temple's being built. And by the way, parentheses, verse 6, verse 23, it's been going on for 100 years. Even while they were trying to build the walls. And then they go back to verse 24. Then the work of the house of God, that's the temple that is in Jerusalem, stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, follow that? 
Because if you just sit down and you read this, you're going to be confused. Verses 1 through 5, the beginning with the temple, parentheses 6 through 23. It's been going on for, for 100 years. And by the way, let's go back to where I started. The temple stopped. Okay? Everybody's following me? Shake your head. One way or the other. Okay. All right. I hope you're following me. Okay, parentheses 6, 23. Looking forward. This is what this has been going on. I think that's why he put it in there. I think he's just trying to show us, and he's trying to show those who read Scripture, like this opposition that the Jews faced building the temple has been something God's people have always faced. And he looks forward, says, you know, what has been going on. In fact, if he had said, if we had said, this is going on with the president, and by the way, when Roosevelt was president, you'd say, oh, yeah, I know, you know what I mean? So that, that's kind of what's happening. There's a, they know who the kings are. We're not very familiar with that. So what I want to do this morning is, this is what I want to do. I want to look at this opposition. I want to look at the opposition that took place during the temple. And I want to look at the opposition as Ezra's looking forward to the opposition that on the walls. And see just opposition in a general sense. And draw some principles and look at what God would have to say to us about dealing with adversity and difficulties and trials. Okay, So I want to, I want to look at the whole the whole opposition and adversity and struggles that the people have gone through, even though it's the spanning of almost 100 years, okay? And that's what we're going to do. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this opposition in the three headings, okay? First is the power of influence. The second one is the persistence of opposition. And the third heading is the principles of adversity. So that's where we're going. Now, verse 5 uh, Brother Bill read through verse 6. So verse 6, we're looking forward to the reign of Xerxes. Um, uh, excuse me, Xerxes in verse 6. And now verse 7, I want to read this letter for you to put it in context. Because when this fourth king, Xerxes, became powerful and became king and there was opposition against the walls, this is what happened. And I'll get all these funny words. We'll read them really fast and make it like I know what I'm talking about, okay? In the days of Xerxes, Bishlam and mid Redath and Tabil and the rest of the associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahim, the commander of Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahim, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of the associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech and the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble, that's a great word right there, oh, snapper. I mean, if you're looking for a name, you can call him Snap for short. Oh, snapper, deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the provinces beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes, the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greetings, and now, be it known to you, king, that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that this city is rebuilt and the walls finished. They will not pay tribute, custom or toll. And the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore we send and inform the king in order that the search may be done made in the books of the records of your fathers. You will find, if you look, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings, provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why the city was laid waste. 
We make known to the king that if this city be is rebuilt and its walls finished, you, O king, will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. Some letter, huh? Chapter 4, verse 1. The power of influence. Okay, so this is back. This is during the rebuilding of the, of the temple. And we read. Ezra 4 opens up. Remember, Ezra 3 ends. Glorious. Ezra 4, chapter 1. Now the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel, which I love that name. I just love saying that name. Zerubbabel. And the heads of fathers' houses said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esradan, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now notice first it says the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. Just those two tribes, southern kingdom is mentioned, probably because the remnant that came back from Babylon to Jerusalem consisted of mostly the descendants of those two tribes. Right, if you listen to the first sermon, you'll understand that. The first two tribes. And these adversaries or enemies, the NIV, heard that the returning exiles were building the temple. But the returning exile, look at their response, exile's response in verse 3. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's house in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. We alone... But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So I think the first question we need to ask of the text is why would they turn down able body help? You have a crew of people coming and saying, we want to help you. Look, we want, we'll help you. We worship, we sacrifice like you do. We want to help you. Like, no, thank you. We'll do this. I mean, it almost seems a little bit rude. I mean, how did they know at this moment they were adversaries? We don't see nothing in the text yet. Some people say, well, it was hindsight. All right, maybe. But the question or the answer to that question of why they would be, no, thank you, we don't want able-bodied strength and help to move all this rubble, the question or the answer to that question is found in who they were. The people that were settled in that land before they got there was a mixed race that came from Samaria. They were not full-blooded Jewish people. Folks. They were descendants of the conquered race that the Assyrians had transported, which we talked about again in the first sermon. They transported to Israel in 721 BC. So you have these Babylonians, these mixed race being brought to Samaria. There's some Jews that are left over. They marry, and what you have left there is this mixed race. And you think, all right, so what? Still seems a little bit bar- uh, harsh. There's a mixture of, of, of races there. Here's the problem. The religion in which they adopted was this hodgepodge idea of of idol worship and Jehovah worship. So while they were settling in the land, they feared the Lord. They were living in Samaria. They were living in in the northern part of Israel, which was the capital before it was destroyed. And they were having these problems, and, and they, they, they came together, and they're like, why are we having so many problems living in this land known as Israel? He says, probably because we haven't adopted the worship the God of, the, of this land, because they would, they would have this polytheistic, like certain gods are in certain places. And they said, well, we've we got to do something about that. So they called on the Israel's priests to say, look, we're not, we're, not, we're not fitting in around here. Things aren't going very well around here. What, help us. What, what do we do? And the priest said, okay, I will show you what you need to do, how to worship Yahweh, Jehovah God, the one who, who reigns. I'll show you. And they show them. But then they begin to mix. 
the worship of God and the worship of false God. You can read all about this in 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17, when you get home, you can read that. And, and let, me tell you what the, well, let me tell you what the bottom line is. 2 Kings chapter 17, the very end of the chapter, it says this about this mixed race. So these nations feared the Lord, Yahweh, and also served their other carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children did likewise, and so their fathers did, so they did to this very day. There's this combination of polytheism worship and the worship of God. They mixed it together. So what is the problem with helping these people come and build the temple which God had commanded and, and, and released them to do? Syncretism. Syncretism. The blending of false religion being caught up in their culture with the worship of the one true God. They would add, and they, would, they never repented of their idolatry. They just brought it all together, shook up a jaw and said, let's do it all. So they were wise to say, you know what? No, thank you. You know what? This is not going to work. We're not going to fall into spiritual compromise. We're not going to mingle the worship of false gods and the worship of the true God. No, thank you. We don't need your help. They, 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 they wouldn't go for the syncretistic uh, 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 joining together of these religions. That's the problem. And, and, and some would look at this passage of Scripture some do this, and, 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 and they say, you know what, the principle then is we should not mix with unchristian, that we shouldn't hang out with non-Christians, that we shouldn't have relationship with people who aren't believers. That, that's not what it's saying. What it does mean that we must never, ever compromise the truth of the gospel. We must never compromise the truth of the gospel. The concern here, and we'll see with interracial marriages in a few weeks, is not really the issue of race and friendship, but on compromise and influence. Okay, you got that? Compromise and influence. Compromising the worship of the one true God and and stifling the mission, the work of God by bad influences. Here's the bottom line. If we are not careful, we can be led down the road of false worship and failed mission. False worship and failed mission. So I said this before, and, and, and I know some of you are new here. There are two teams that we need to avoid. There are two teams that the church, the people of God, need to avoid. And Jesus, praise God, tells us what those two teams are. Just turn in your Bibles, if you, if you, if you have it, to, to John chapter 17. God's high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying to the Father, and we get to listen in to the, to the, to, to the eternal Son of God pray. And he prays that we would stay off two teams. And that first team is syncretism, which says fit in, do as the world does. And separatism says run from the world, don't talk to anybody. Jesus says avoid those two teams. John 17, verse 14. He says, I have given them your word, Father. I have given your, my disciples, the apostles, your father, the followers, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus says, stay off the team of syncretism. Stay off the team of just going with the flow. There are going to be people, when you stand for the truth of the gospel, that will hate you. When you stand on God's word, when you trust in Christ who is the word, the Bible says that we have moved from the darkness kingdom to light, from, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. So 
we need to be different. Our marriages should be different. The way we handle money should be different. The way we deal with our children should be different. Our worldviews on what's happening and what's going to happen should be different. Jesus, stand strong. People will hate you. Don't compromise. Jude tells us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. If we're so in love with the world and its ways, we're going to compromise the gospel and then we'll have no use. We'll be of no good use in living on mission, living out in such a way of pointing people to King Jesus and the kingdom of God. Because we'll be a people that have nothing to say to a fallen world. That will be a people that will just say everybody's good instead of calling them to repentance. With a message of, 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 of sin and forgiveness. To turn from your sin, to trust in Jesus. If everything is just great and people are just going to hell really with a social conscience. Because all you got to do is be nice. That's what the world will tell you. So Jesus says avoid that. Stand on the word. Don't worry. People will hate you. Look at the second team he says. Avoid separatism. So you can read Ezra 9, uh, 4, and you see these people saying, I don't want no help with you. We have, we're doing this. It's not really about you. It's about what God has given us. So we could say, you know what? Separate yourself from the world. You know the word Pharisee comes from the word separate? They got in all kinds of trouble because separation does not mean a lack of mission. Doesn't mean stop loving people. Doesn't mean stop pointing people to God. In fact, if you look at the scriptures in the New Testament, the, the Pharisees are pictured as, as a people of just being insensitive jerks. They were not living on mission. They were not declaring and demonstrating the gospel, not loving people and calling people to repentance. They were separatists. Hang out with only Christians. Christian hairdresser, Christian car mechanic, Christian parties. Who's having it? You know what I mean? Make up silly rules in order to be holy. Don't go to public school. Don't talk to anyone that goes to public school. Don't talk to anyone who talks to anyone that talks to anyone that goes to public school. The spiritual, you know, you want to be really spiritual in church, get a harp. The organ as far as we're going to go, right? Don't chew gum. You know, you know where they're going. Don't dance because, you know, line dancing really produced a lot of kids. You know what I mean? You know, it just doesn't make sense. Because separatist people see sin is out there and we're good. You be in the church a week, you'll see sin everywhere. Because the Bible says sin's not out there, sin's where in the heart. Out of your evil heart comes fornication, right, and, and, and greed. Jesus said, avoid these two teams. Yes, be separate, love me, serve me. And you, you know what? Don't run from people, love them, care for them. Be like Jesus. Look at verse 17. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. Let them hold to your word. And then he says, as you sent me into the world as a savior, into a broken, fallen world, so I send them into the world, not as a savior, not to die for sin, but with the message of of the gospel. And for their sake, I consecrated myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus is praying for what, what we call here sanctified sentness. Not a word, we made it up, but it works sanctified, set apart for God, and sent into the world. It's what we call missional living. It's called living on mission. See, we worship the one true God, and like Jesus, we engage people. We love them. Yet we keep a watchful eye that we don't sin and compromise the worship of the one true God or fail in its mission to love people and point them to Jesus. It's attention. 
We're biblical and we're cultural like Jesus who lived in a culture and ministered to sinners and spoke truth into his life. He drank the drink of the culture. He wore the dress of the culture. He sang the songs of the culture. That means we love the people in the world. We engage people who are very different from us, but in no way we're being seduced or attracted to the sins of the culture. And I'll tell you, if you know, as a believer, if you're growing in grace and knowledge of Christ, and you're growing in the gospel, as you get older and as you get more mature, the world should look less attractive. If the world is looking more and more attractive, what people have, what people do, and, and, and all the worldly systems, the one with the most toys wins, if that's looking more attractive, you're going in the wrong way. The gospel has not gotten your heart. And you should be growing in that way. So, so worship and mission is not to dive into the world, not to detach from the world, but to be sent with the mission into the world. Okay, so listen again, not to dive into the world, not to be detached from the world, but to be sent with a mission into the world, declaring and demonstrating in love, declaring in truth the gospel, just like Jesus. The Bible says he lived among us without sin, and yet he loved people. Is it possible to love people and not sin? Jesus did it. He went to the parties Right? He's not the guy, as I said before, with the lampshade on his head drunk at the end. That's not him. But he went and shared his life with people where they were. Worship and mission. Again, it's not really about race or friendship. It's about compromise and influence. Worship and mission. So I'll ask you, we'll go to the next point. Do, you, do others see you as this insensitive, self-righteous person or you're, or you're so much in love with this world that people don't even know you're a Christian. You know, that's the question you have to ask for yourself because people are perishing. The question really is who's influencing who? I used to tell my kids that all the time. And I have to tell myself that all the time. We should be influencing others with the salt and light of the gospel. The people in Ezra's day knew that they were called to Jerusalem to worship God and to live on mission with him there. Don't ever think, don't ever think I could point to a thousand scriptures, I won't. Don't ever think that God met with Israel and the people and his Shekinah glory and his face and his panim and his presence in Jerusalem was just for them. Never think that. They were to meet with him there, but the light was for the world. The light was for the world, for the Gentiles, for all people to see the gospel and come to faith in Christ. So the power of influence, okay, who's, who's, who, who, who is uh, uh, influencing who? And look at the persistence of, of opposition. Now, now remember, the people of Israel had left Babylon. They're on their way, right? And they get to Jerusalem. They build an altar. They're not building bombs, right? They're not stockpiling uranium and, and, and loading warheads. They're not warriors. They're worshipers. They're not building bombs. They're building a temple. They're not a huge threat, I mean, the first thing they do is go and worship. The first thing they do, their priorities are right. Right? Ezra 3, the king, heart is moved by God. God then moves the heart of his people. God's in it. Yet they face opposition, not only building the temple, but the wall in which the rest of the scripture talks about. So the opposition against God's people is both persistent and consistent. It's happened for a long time. Derek Kidner, in a wonderful commentary on Ezra, says this, nothing... Listen, nothing that is attempted for God will now go unchallenged and scarcely a tactic be unexplored by the opposition. Life is full of opposition toward the things of God, is it not? 
And though we know the end story, not everything is just and perfect and right at the moment. Not every court decision is just. Not every legal proceeding is right. And the people in exile had to learn that doing the will of God, doing the things that God wanted them to do, there was going to be opposition. There will actually be those who tried to harm them. How frustrating it is. Have you ever been to that place where you see the ungodly, the people who want nothing to do with God, move ahead through lying, intimidation, conniving? Look, it's easy to be discouraged. If you've never been to that place, your eyes aren't open. It's discouraging. Verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Have you ever heard that voice in your head? What are you doing? Why do you bother? You're wasting your time. They're not listening. They're not learning. Just just give up. They're discouraged. Pastors are discouraged at times. Where you work, I'm sure you're discouraged at times. Verse 5, there's bribery. They bribe counsels against them to frustrate the purpose. It's amazing how far people will go to oppose God's people. They're bribing. Verse 6, false accusation. They wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Who's the great accuser of Scripture? Satan and his emissaries. We'll get to that. Verse 10 and verse 14, in the letter that was written with this, with this Artaxerxes, now we're into that timetable now, uh, the Jews, we see flattery. Oh, the great and noble, oh, snapper. <laughs> I love that word, man. Oh, snap, who deported us and settled us in the cities. Verse 14, oh, king. Because we ate the salt of the palace and it's not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. That's a, that's a way of saying, look, we're, we're, we're cool, man. We're looking out for you. Like, we, we've hung out together. Verse 13, lying. Now be known to the king that if this city is rebuilt, the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. I mean, how do they know that? They're a feeble people. It's not, they're not warriors. They don't have nothing. They, they're certainly not going to say, we're not paying. You know, they'll just come in and crush them. Verse 15 and 16, you got exaggeration. People love to exaggerate. Blow things out of proportion. Verse 15. In order that a search be made in the book of the records of the fathers, you will find in the book and learn that this city is a rebellious city. It's a rebellious city. Hurtful to kings and provinces and, and sedition is stirred up from old. That's why this city was laid to waste. We make known to you, king, that this city is rebuilt and its walls finished. You'll have no possession beyond the river. That's, that's west of the Euphrates, all that land. If you let this happen, that's not going to happen. Right? So we got half-truths. we got misinformation. It just doesn't stop. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. And that's true. Israel had some big kings. Solomon was a mighty warrior, David. But they smear the whole city with one stroke. The information is slanted, but... It convinced the king. Verses 17 through 23 is the letter. We won't read it, but it's the letter, and the king basically says, huh, we checked it out. We don't like that city. In fact, you know what? I'm a little afraid for my kingdom. Make them stop. Make them stop. You know, sometimes things happen that way. You're doing the will of God. You're moving in the right direction, and then, bam, frustration, disappointment, adversity, opposition, and you're forced to stop what you know you should keep doing, but you can't. And you're discouraged. What are we to do? 
I mean, what can we take away from this discouraged people, this, this actual building that has stopped, the temple and, excuse me, the temple and the walls, remember the context, has stopped. What do we take away? Well, let me give you two things. The first is, I don't have it on there. I'll just have to write this down. The first is here. This passage for us, this narrative for us is a reality check, is it not? It's a reality check, right? Please do not be surprised when you're in the clear will of God and people oppose you. Jesus said, in the world, what? You will have trouble. You'll have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And we go, you know what? That's true. We know that here. And then we, we face opposition, we face adversity, we know we're doing the right thing, and we get discouraged so easily, saying, no, take heart. We need to rest in the sovereignty of God, that God knows what he's doing, God is sovereign over the world, he works that way through people, many times it looks like there's, there's no place to go, remember the three Hebrew boys thrown into a furnace, and yet God comes through. Paul stoned in Lystra, beaten so bad they thought he's dead, so they put the rocks down, it's like he's dead. He wipes himself off, goes back into the city. And Acts 14 says that after he left that city, he went from town to town on the way to Antioch, where they sent him. He went from town to town. Know what it says? He says he was strengthening the churches, the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So this is a reality check for us. It puts a check on our um, expectations so expect opposition, expect adversity, expect trouble, count on it, don't be surprised. And that's one of the reasons, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but it's one of the reasons why I hate this prosperity gospel. That's why I hate the prosperity gospel. If you are told over and over and over again that Jesus is your sugar daddy who will give you wealth, health, and prosperity, and then when life happens, you're disillusioned, you're, you're angry, you're bitter, you're depressed, happens. God's people face adversity and struggles. Let the story serve as a reminder, a reality check. Number two, please don't use verses like this and other verses where you see opposition because of the stupid decision you make. That drives me crazy. Right? You ever make a really stupid decision? You're like, my boss is really persecuting me. He knows I'm a Christian. So what? I'm late an hour and a half every day. I don't see what the problem is. Like, you know, why is he, why are you giving me a ticket? I know I was doing 45 and a 30, but you saw the fish on the back of my car. That's what this is all about. No. Oh, my verse this morning, you know what it was? It was in Matthew. It says, blessed are those who revile you and persecute you. Rejoice and be glad. I'm just going to rejoice. No. You're an idiot. You know what I mean? I, like, you, know, you, just, you, you caused that yourself. So don't, don't stand, we don't want to stand on these verses. Rather, 1 Peter 4 says, don't be surprised. Fiery trials will come upon you to test you. It's not like something strange has happened to you, but rejoice in Christ, because he suffered, that you may rejoice, and his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, evildoer, or a meddler. So he goes from murder to meddling. A lot of place in between, man. Right? We all find ourselves somewhere between there. Okay? Murder and meddling. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. So here's the real deal. We need to humbly confess when we make dumb decisions. We must humbly confess when we do stupid things. But if we're following Jesus... We're standing on his word, right? We're acting on clear biblical principles, loving truth, loving others. Don't be discouraged. Don't fret when others frustrate your Christ-centered, Christ-exalting purposes. And they, and they hurl false accusations against you or flattery or they exaggerate truth. 
Let me tell you something about this book of Ezra. Look at verse 23. It says, when, Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Reham and Shishmai, Shmai, the scribe, and their accused, they went to haste to Jews at Jerusalem and by force, by force and power made them cease. And you think, it's over. Right? The will of God is done. It was just following. The game is played. God lost. I don't think so. In a few weeks, right here, right when that was written, right when that happened, what we're going to find is this high-ranking Jewish man named Nehemiah comes on the scene. Cupbearer to the king. And God uses Nehemiah. The story's not over. God gets the victory. Verse 24 even. Look what it says. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. But then it goes on to say it ceased when? Until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It's a clue where we're going. So yeah, yeah, it looks like they lost, but they have not. God's purposes will not be thwarted. His plans will not be done, okay? Will not be uh, done over. The persistence, and finally, listen to the principles. Number one, what can we, what, what's some of the principles we can take away? Let me give you three of them. If you're jotting these down. Number one, know the will of God. So when you're facing adversity, know the will of God. When the doors are open and you're getting hostility and opposition, you're getting pushback, ask the question to yourself, am I walking in God's will and therefore I should expect opposition and adversity or did God close the door on me and I'm kicking against the door that God has shut? Now we know in the scripture that Ezra 4 tells us they were doing the will and the work of God. God's clear command, do it. But sometimes life's not always that clear, is it? Is it always that easy? Maybe you're frustrated and there's adversity and opposition in your life because of the career you've chosen. You're thinking, is this really what God wants me to do? Maybe you're thinking about the college you're going to, the school you signed up for, or the home you bought, the neighborhood, and other things in your life that you, know, you just don't read about in Scripture. They're, they're, they're gray areas. You're not really sure, and, and you're feeling opposition. You're feeling a, a, some adversity. You're frustrated. You're disappointed. You try and say, I don't know. Is this something, I is this something that, that is just happening because I'm following the will of God, or is this something because I'm, I'm trying to kick against the door that God's closed and has me going in a different direction? That's a hard way to, that's hard to figure out sometimes. And unfortunately, I don't have an answer for you. I know you think, all right, give me the answer. I don't have it. But let me give you a couple of principles Chuck Swindoll uh, gives us. Number one, how do you know? Number one, God leads through his word. Read God's word. What does it say? It says, it says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. There are a lot of places in scripture that says this is the will of God for you. You know, you don't have to ask God, Lord, do I need to forgive that person? It's in the Bible. You don't have to ask. Lord, should I be faithful in my marriage? Things in Scripture that are clear, we don't pray, we obey. Right? I mean, it's pretty clear. Then there are principles in Scripture, general guidelines that require discernment, but we need to, we need to see what, what are the principles of Scripture. How can that be a guide for me? You ever see the sign, drive carefully? Okay? It doesn't tell you why, really. So you're thinking, all right, it's dry out. It's clear. There's no one on the road. I'll do the speed limit. Then you see the sign and it's raining or it's ice or it's hailing. And you're thinking, you know what? I need to drive carefully. I need to slow down. I can't do 55. I got to do 15. And that's kind of like, that's kind of like the, 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 the principles of Scripture. All right? Because you're figuring out tires, weather, night. You know, you got all these things running in your head and you got to make this decision. 
Well, when we saturate ourselves with the scriptures and we're hearing the voice of God, we're following his lead, we're looking at scripture, we're reading scripture, we're, we're ingesting scripture. There's a lot of decisions to make, but we're doing it because we're, 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 we have scripture. We're, we're, we're going to be deciding how do we go ahead from here. So you've got, you got to know not only, not only the clear teaching of Scripture, but you've got to know the principles as well. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom and songs, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to your heart. And whatever you do, verse 17, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever you do, I, I, you know, I know I need to follow Scripture. What am I doing? The principle is just I've got to do it make sure God gets glory. Can I do this and give God glory? That, that's what he's saying. So number one, these through your word. Number two, God leads us through the inner prompting of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's, God is, it's God's will who's working in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. There's that, there's that spirit guiding, leading, working of God in your life. Here's the problem with that. It's not always feel good. We have to follow scripture, but let me tell you something, and I, and I speak from experience, and you know it, and I know it. Sometimes we want to hear the spirit, but we really want to hear the spirit say what we want. You know, we have to be honest with ourselves. Lord, I really want to know your will no matter what it is. Yes, no, go, stop. I, I want to lay it. I want to search my heart. I can be self-deceptive. I know I can be, Lord. So I need to search my heart. I really need to bow, set aside my will. I really want to hear from you. God's Spirit will prompt you. Number three, God leads us through the counsel of wise, qualified, trustworthy people. Right? We're a church, not with community groups, of community groups. And, and I think we need to recognize there are older, more mature people who've walked with Jesus, and we gather in community, we'll make decisions in vacuums. Your heart, again, is desperately wicked and deceitful. deceitful. You're welcome. I know you came here just to hear that. So at critical moments in your life, seek the counsel of others. I've got to tell you, every time I do, every time I do, either I get the answer I'm looking for, or banging heads and thinking through, iron sharpening iron, I come with the decision I need to make. So you've got to choose them wisely, but we need to speak the truth to one another. Number four, God leads us in his will by the inner assurance of peace. Colossians 3 again, let the peace of Christ rule your heart. And, and the peace of God is like an umpire in your heart. And again, I know it's an emotion, and I know we need to wrestle with it, but there's this deep-seated God-given peace in the midst of obstacles, in the midst of odds of struggle, regardless of the danger. It's the Spirit of God that says, I'm with you. Press on. Yes, you're doing right. Yes, move forward. And, and there's a peace. So we got to know the will of God. Where do you want me to go from here? What do you want from me? The second thing we need to do in the principle of all this is, number two, know who the enemy is. In verse four, excuse me, in chapter four, verse one, we know who the people, their adversaries that were living in the land. Verse seven and eight, there's a list of names. So we see that, but what we really don't see, what Scripture teaches us, is the thing that's going on behind the enemy, behind the opposition, behind the, the adversity that, that you're facing with people, and that's Satan. And sometimes people are just pawns in the game that he's playing. Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord, put on the armor of God, stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, against cosmic powers. Over this darkness, that's who we're wrestling against. The spiritual forces in, in, in heavenly places. So know who your enemy is. Know what's really going on. You know what that will help you to do? 
that will free you from the hatred you have toward that person. Hopefully that will free you. Hopefully you will see, you know what? They're a porn, they're locked, they're, they're engaged. Satan is using them and, and that may make you soften you a little bit toward the people and maybe not love, maybe not, you know, hate them. Because you know it's not really them. It's not really them. It, 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 it's what's going on behind them. And you know what? It could free you from anger. And you know what? When you're freed from that anger and that hostility because you're seeing what's really going on, the spiritual fight going on, you can actually pray for them. Pray for your enemies, love your enemies. I heard that somewhere. Yeah, it was Jesus. I think Jesus said that. Yeah, I said, pray for them and love them, right? Paul says, for we walk in the flesh, we wage war, not according to the flesh. Our weapons of warfare are not flesh, but divine power to destroy strongholds. Know your enemy. The final thing is know and press in the gospel. Know and press in the gospel. Make sure you are walking in the ways of God and then we're called to endure it. But finally, know and press in the gospel. And this is the big one, right? No matter the adversity, the struggle, the opposition, be it by someone at work, someone at your school, someone in your home, someone in your neighborhood, we can be very confident because of the gospel. Our ultimate victory has been fought and won. On the cross, Jesus Christ, our good God and Savior, broke the power of sin, he broke the penalty, he paid the penalty for sin, he conquered sin, and he released the hold that Satan has on you. First John 3, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. On Calvary. What's left really is just to mop up what's going to happen. Christ will reign, Christ will rule, Christ will put every sin down, all his enemies, all adversity, all opposition will be done away with. We have a cross, we have an empty tomb that proclaims that truth. And we as Christ's people will be, in the end, victorious. Paul encouraged the Romans who was under Nero and being just crushed. He writes to them in verse uh, chapter 16, the God of peace will crush Satan under your foot shortly. So family, listen, in times of adversity, discouragement, opposition, be encouraged by the fact that the gospel, the gospel God's people will be victorious. Let me end with a story. Say, Pastor, what does that mean? How do I shape adversity? How do I shape opposition? How do I shape what I'm going through around the gospel and the truth of Christ's reigning rule? Let me tell you. You take this home with you. Give me two more minutes. It was October 17th, 2003. And for eight innings, Aaron Boone sat on the bench wondering what in the world happened to his hitting. Then in the eighth inning, the Yankees were losing 5-2, to two, and it looked like the rivalry Boston Red Sox were going to win the pennant. I was so mad. I mean, anybody but the Red Sox. But then the Yankees in the eighth inning, losing 5-2, to two, catch up, and it's 5-5. Five, five. And during that rally, third baseman Eureka Wilson was lifted for, for pinch hitter Ruben Sierra. And then Sierra walks intentionally. Joe Torre calls on slumping Aaron Boone to come into the game. And I'm thinking, no, please, somebody else, not him. And the game moves to, to the 11th inning, and it's time for Boone to get up. And I'm thinking, take him out, put somebody else in. Joe Torre sticks to his guns. I am stressed out. I'm like, really, really? Why him? Are we ever going to win? 
Tim Wakefield's throwing like these knuckleballs that nobody can hit. Aaron Boone had faced him twice already. Not one piece of the ball he got. And there is Aaron Boone going up. Stressed out. I had no idea how this was going to end. Boone gets to the plate. Whitfield, he, he was like on fire. He was going to win the MVP. Throws that knuckleball over the plate. And the stadium is buzzing. Building to a roar. Boone steps up. They know one swing and it would be all over, and there goes the ball. Knuckleball flies, Boone readies himself, uncoils, bam! Over the wall. The only thing left for Frank Sinatra to sing, New York, New York. (laughs) It was glorious. It was glorious. What a stressful night. Ended, it was great. Ah! I still watch it. But this time, I'm like, yeah, take the bum out. Yeah, put Boom in. Leave him in, too, while you're at it. He hasn't hit nothing in two months, but you know what? It's a good decision. <laughs> yeah, pinch hit him. Go ahead. No, oh, don't take him out in 11th inning. Let him get up and hit. I know the end. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, the writer of Hebrew tells us. Colossians says, in you, you were dead in your sin uncircumcised of your flesh, you were blinded to the truth. God made you alive, having forgiven your trespasses. He canceled the record of debt that you owed to a holy God that stood against us with his legal demand. You violated the law of God. You are accountable to him. This he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Know the will of God. Know who your enemy is. And always when facing opposition, adversity, and trouble, press into the gospel. Cling to the gospel. Hold tightly to the gospel. The work of the cross, the empty tune guarantees that the opposition and the adversity that you face is not the end of the story Jesus is. Amen? So where are you today? Are you engaging people? Are you loving people? Are you at a place I need to know the will of God? I need a gathering community and and seek that with help. Are you honest about, you know, I I really want to know God's will? Are you trusting in the gospel? Do you know the end of the story and that is shaping you today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for, really, Lord, your your grace, your mercy, your your good providence. Nothing in this world will, will stop you. Nothing in this world will thwart your plans and purposes, Lord. And Father, we need to rest in that sovereignty even in the midst of trials and difficulties in our lives. Father, as a people, we pray that you would show us what it is. What's that perfect will for our lives? Where are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to be doing? Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue to remain worshiping you, the one true God, living on mission, as Jesus says, to seek and to save the lost. He came not to be served, but to serve. Give us life as a ransom for many. Father, may we never stop worshiping you. May we never stop living on mission, declaring and demonstrating the gospel to a broken world that desperately needs you. And may we never get to the place where we think we're greater than others. When we never get to the place we're so caught up that we don't shine for you. It's a tension and it's a balance. Father, we pray that you would give it to us. Lord, we love you. Father, we thank you. And we worship you. Living on mission with you until Jesus comes. In Jesus' name, amen.